Today, we are speaking on Matthew 5, 38 to 48. So uh, before I dive into the te- to explaining the text, let's actually read the text. So um, the outline should be on uh, your service sheets. So starting at verse 38. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Great. So, we've been spending the last number of weeks in the book of Matthew, starting... um, Dave took us through the Beatitudes, um, and then we had Mark Scheibe spoke to us as well about how God's people relate to the Mosaic Law, and specifically the challenge to them that unless their righteousness exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees, then they are not God's people. A huge challenge to the Jewish people of Jesus' day, and a huge challenge to us today also. As we've seen, the scribes and Pharisees were held up as the definition of righteousness. They were the masters of upholding the law. Yet God's people are called to exceed even them. So having seen the challenge laid before us by Jesus to exceed that righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, we then spent the last few weeks looking at how God's people, how we, can achieve that by looking at some of the the big ten, as Dave described them, the big ten commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Do not give false witness. Ways of living life together to bring glory to God. Now, having followed that expositional method of preaching, working systematically through Matthew 5, today we come to two smaller sections of, the, of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. 11 verses from verse 38 to verse 48 of Matthew 5. Now, some of the points we'll be covering will mirror some of the points covered by Dave a few weeks ago when he spoke in verses 21 to 26 of Matthew 5, which was all about uh, dealing with anger. But I think it's important to recognize the issues of anger and revenge are real. And the fact that Jesus comes to them again, yes, in different ways, but still the same sort of issues, shows the seriousness of them to us being able to achieve that challenge of exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. As we'll see today, these two small sections are huge in terms of what they call us to do. They go against everything our sinful hearts tells us to do, And for the Israelites living in Jesus' time, they were astonishing as they seemed to contradict everything that the law said. But what we'll soon discover is that there was nothing new in what Jesus was preaching here. As Mark Scheibe showed us when he spoke on verses 17 to 20 a few weeks ago, Jesus wasn't telling the Israelites to ignore 1,500 years of law. In fact, he was showing them that what they had thought was the law for the last 1,500 years was sorely misinterpreted and had in fact been twisted by the sinful ways of man. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 17. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So with that in mind, we're going to cover two points in this area today. I've called them a right interpretation of the law and a radical interpretation of the law. So our first point, a right interpretation of the law. Let's dive into today's passage with a quick bit of history. So in verse 38 of today's passage, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. These seven words quoted by Jesus are actually taken from three Old Testament passages. Exodus 21-24, Leviticus 24-20, and Deuteronomy 19-21. And they deal with God's law to the new nation of Israel after they have come out of Egypt. The concept of eye for eye relates to how God's people are to interact with each other and specifically how disputes are to be handled in the realm of what we know today as the law courts. It's something known as the lex talionis, or the principle of exact retribution. Remember, Israel was a new nation. They'd lived under Egyptian rule for over 400 years. They'd never have to govern for themselves. God, in his grace and wisdom, gave the law to Moses to show the young nation how they should live under God and with each other. But as we know with any information we read and hear today, context is key. See, in the Exodus passage, starting at verse 22, it says, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you're to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Likewise, in Leviticus um, passage, it says, verses 19 and 20, if anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured, uh, sorry, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. And then again, in Deuteronomy, it says, starting at verse 18, the judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So, how to deal with an injury to a pregnant woman, how to deal with an injury to a neighbor, and how to deal with a false witness. Different types of people, but all with the same punishment, essentially. But the context is the key thing here. These weren't laws being given for everyone to exercise as they see fit. Can you think of the number of slanderous claims that would be made? You injured my pregnant wife. You broke my leg. You lied so I'd be punished. It'd be a free-for-all. It'd be madness. But no, look at Deuteronomy 19. It says, the judges must make a thorough investigation. These laws were for the nation, but they were for the judges to carry out. And they were there to ensure that the punishment fits the crime. John Stott says it had the double effect of defining justice and restraining revenge. It's just like we have it today in the law courts. The punishment for a crime is determined by the court and is carried out by the relevant legal institution. It's not for us to decide how someone should be punished. 
for breaking a law that causes us harm or loss. It's for the courts. And that's exactly how it was intended for the Israelites when God gave the law to Moses. But what had gone wrong? While the scribes and Pharisees and God's people in general had twisted God's law, they'd applied it to everyday relationships instead of leaving it with the issues of the court of law. They'd taken something that was meant for punishable wrongdoing, such as death or injury, and instead applied it in any instance in which we've been wronged. So in essence, the Pharisees had taken a law meant to stop revenge and twisted it to allow them to take revenge. The very thing meant to stop vengeance was being used to enact it. But how does Jesus tell us where to behave towards one another? Well, look at today's passage, verses 39 to 42. He says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So let's unpack this a little. If anyone wants to slap you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, I think many people misinterpret what this means. They may think it means to look the other way when bad things happen to us, to take no action, to ignore injustice, to just stick our heads in the sand and wait for it to be over. But really look at what Jesus is saying here. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Now, in those times, most people would have been right-handed, probably similar to today. I'm right-handed myself. If I slap you on the right cheek with my right hand, there's only really one way I'm going to do it. Jacob, can you come up for a second? Uh, Don't worry. We discussed this earlier. Um, I'm not just going to smack someone across the face for the sake of it. Um, So, just to show you, practical demonstration, if I want to hit Jacob on the right cheek with my right hand, there's only one way I'm going to do it. I'm going to hit him with the back of my hand. If I want to try and hit him with my palm, I have to kind of contort myself here to try and do it. It doesn't work. Thanks thanks very much. Very quick thing. Go put a nice pack on that. Now, um, we know that today to hit a person with the back of your hand is fairly insulting. And it was no different in Jesus' day. It probably was actually more insulting back then. Hitting with the back of your hand was how you would hit a slave. Someone you didn't see as equal. Someone who was below society. But how are we to respond to such an insult? Well, Jesus tells us, turn the other cheek also. Now, I think it's fair to say Jesus is not necessarily talking about a literal situation of being slapped, like was just demonstrated, but more about instances of when we've been wronged. A Christian's response should not be to seek revenge. We shouldn't be planning to get someone back for wronging us or delighting in such revenge. God is the judge, not us. He will deal with all sin. We're told in Romans 12, 19, when Paul writes, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay the Lord, says the Lord. And that little quote at the end actually comes from Deuteronomy, which we've touched on already. For all of us, we hate when we've been wronged. Maybe a situation in work where you're blamed for something going wrong that wasn't even your fault. It may be when we've been overcharged for a bill and we rightly feel aggrieved. Or even think of children. When another child takes their favorite toy 
or even the toy they've been ignoring for the last six months. It doesn't matter. It's still theirs and they react in anger. They hit or they push that child that in their mind has stolen from them. Similarly for us, we can rightly perhaps and wrongly feel like we want revenge on that work colleague who's pinned the blame on us for something that we're not at fault for or on the place or person who's overcharged us for a bill. But the key thing for us is to not take revenge. It's for the Lord to deal with at the day of judgment. Taking revenge against someone who has wronged you, no matter the justification in your mind, will only lead you down a dark path and take you away from God's glory. And it's not just seeking revenge, even plotting it in your mind, despite knowing that you'll never go through with it, takes us away from God's glory. Just think of Mr. Burns from The Simpsons sitting there in his mansion, plotting against everyone who's perceived as wronged him with, with his hands like this, going, excellent. Dave covered it a few weeks ago when he spoke on uh, Jesus' teaching on adultery. Just as verse 28 says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's the same with how we seek revenge on those who have wronged us. It's not enough to simply say, don't take revenge. We need to not even seek revenge in our hearts. Don't even go there. Don't be like Mr. Burns. Jesus is telling us, turn the other cheek. He knows that to do otherwise would allow sin into our hearts and grow, and it would grow like a weed, choking our desire for him. Now, it's important to note, a quick side note here, that turning the other cheek is related to the idea of personal revenge. It's not about injustice in society. The Bible is clear on this point. If we see an injustice in society, we are called to oppose it. There are countless examples throughout the Bible of this. Just to give you two quick ones, we've got Proverbs 17:15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And Isaiah 1:17, Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Just two examples of how we are called to defend the oppressed and not to accept wickedness. And there are countless other examples. Turn the other cheek is not about ignoring societal wrongs. It's not about allowing wickedness to thrive. We need to hold that famous saying in our minds, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is that good men do nothing. But let's get back to today's passage. This isn't a sermon about dealing with the wrongs in this world. No, Jesus isn't talking about how to deal with injustice. He isn't dealing with a worldview right now. He's speaking to our hearts. This is much more personal. So what about the other examples that he's given here? So he says, And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Well, as we've already been talking about, our response should be love, not hate. But again, context is key. Jesus was speaking to the Jews of his time. So hand over your coat as well. Well, to give a bit more background on this, this relates to the law surrounding loans given in Deuteronomy 24, 10 to 13. Have it up behind me there. When you make a loan of any kind to your neighbor, do not go into their house to get what is offered to you as a pledge. Stay outside and let the neighbor to whom you are making the loan bring the pledge out to you. If the neighbor is poor, do not go to sleep with their pledge in your possession. Return their cloak by sunset so that your neighbor may sleep in it. They will, 
Then they will thank you, and it will be regarded as as a righteous act in the sight of the Lord our God. So when you made a loan to your neighbour in those times, you would take a pledge. We would call it collateral. For a poor neighbour, this would literally be their cloak because they have no other possessions. But to avoid them sleeping in the cold, you should return the cloak to them by sunset. So what's Jesus' point when he says to hand over your cloak also, having already been sued for your coat? Try to think of them as like inner and outer garments, uh, maybe a shirt and a jacket. Jesus is saying, if they sue you for your jacket, give them your shirt as well. Again, it's in the realm of the courts. So you would literally be, it seems extreme, but you would literally be standing naked in the courts, having handed over both your jacket and shirt. If your neighbor is standing with both your garments, while you stand there naked and exposed, it isn't actually you who is exposed. Yes, maybe literally you are exposed, but it's actually them who's exposed. It's their greed being exposed. The biblical scholar, Walter Wink, talks about this as non-violent resistance, or as what John Stott refers to as passive resistance. You're exposing your oppressor's arrogance, their faults, not in a bid to lord it over them, not in order to get your own back, but to direct them towards repentance. We're being creative in our response to an unjust act. We need to expose the wrong against us in order to help our oppressor recognize their wrongs and help them to repent. Next up, we're told, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Again, we need context. The Jews were living under Roman occupation. Under a law called the Impressment Law, a Roman soldier could command anyone to carry their their luggage, their gear, for a mile, but no further. Obviously, it was a way of them enforcing their rule over the Jews. It was about deliberately suppressing the Jews, reminding them who was in charge. We see a clear example of this when Jesus was on his way to be crucified. Simon of Cyrene was made to carry Jesus' cross for him. Jesus' instruction is to go the extra mile. Again, this could be seen as a non-violent or passive resistance. If a Roman soldier was to force someone to go further than one mile, then the punishment for them would be severe. So by going the extra mile, the Jew was resisting, but not seeking revenge. If the Roman soldiers knew that the Jews would go beyond the one mile allowed by law, then they would likely no longer make them help as the risk to them was just too great. Again, it's about exposing wrong. Yes, it may have been law that the Romans could do what they were doing, but that doesn't make it just. Jesus is showing that we can resist without succumbing to anger and revenge. And then lastly, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, reading this on face value, it sounds as if Jesus is commanding us to just give to anyone, no matter what, regardless of what the money or the item is for. But once again, context is key. I think it could be argued that Jesus is speaking against the attitude towards giving of those at the time. When asked for money, there were those, such as the scribes and Pharisees, who did so, but did so grudgingly. Yes, they gave, but they didn't do it with a joyful heart. They resented having to give away their wealth. For us, we need to recognize that giving to those in need is a wonderful Christ-centered opportunity that we've been given. We must do so with a joyful heart. Remember that nothing in this world is ours. Everything belongs to God. 
So to hold on to our wealth or to give it grudgingly is foolish. And there are many ways we can give. We have the larder collection outside here. Uh, Just bringing a tin of soup or a bag of pasta is a small yet vital way in which we can help those less fortunate than us. Giving to the work of the church. Giving to the numerous Christian charities out there that support Christians living in oppressive countries or helping the sick and needy here at home. The point is, give generously. Don't give in order to be obedient to God. Give out of love for your fellow man and the love of our Lord, which is itself obedience to God. It's not about our actions, but our hearts. Now, in these four examples, Jesus has essentially shattered the Jews' worldview, but he's not undermining the law of Moses. Instead, he's helping people to recognize how they are to uphold the law while keeping their hearts pure. So how do we apply these ideas to us today? Well, in some ways it's obvious. Don't seek revenge. In everything, show the love of Christ that is in each of us who believe. Guard our hearts from the devil's schemes. He wants nothing more than for us to take revenge and pleasure in that revenge. He wants us to suffer. He wants us to be oppressed. He wants us to hate giving. He wants us to see our possessions as just that, our possessions. But if we think these ways, if we let the devil in, we let sin in, we disobey God's commands and live only for ourselves. So we must be careful not to interpret Jesus' words on face value. That would simply be doing exactly what God's people had done with the law of an eye for an eye. Context is key. So let's move on to our second point, a radical interpretation of the law. We've seen how Jesus has taken Mosaic law and applied a right interpretation to it. But now he takes another aspect of Mosaic Mosaic law, radically turns it on its head. And this is where we see this radical interpretation. So if you look down at me at the passage, it says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Jesus is changing the law. He isn't. I mentioned this verse at the start, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But what Jesus has just told us in these verses is huge. It flies in the face of all our human instincts. But again, he isn't abolishing the law. I wonder if you've noticed something that Jesus has said here that he also said at the start of verse 38. He says, you have heard that it was said. Jesus is highlighting that this is what was being taught, but that doesn't necessarily mean that was what was originally written. The love your neighbor quote actually comes from Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now compare this with what Jesus is saying is being taught to the people. 
There he says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, it says nothing about hating your enemy in that Leviticus passage. And it seems as if they've omitted the words as yourself. They were basically saying, love your fellow Jew. Hate outsiders. Hate anyone who is different. Anyone who is not one of God's people, hate them. But we see plenty of other examples in Leviticus where the Jewish people are commanded about the treatment of foreigners. Just a few verses later in Leviticus 19, 33 to 34, it says, When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God's people had twisted his law once again. They believed that anyone who was not your neighbor, a fellow Jew, was your enemy. And therefore you should hate them. They completely ignored God's teaching to them about loving foreigners. They decided that loving your enemy or or loving a non-Jew was just too difficult. So they just ignore that bit. And even worse, it's much easier to just to hate them, so we'll do that instead. God hasn't said anything about loving our enemies when commanding us to love our neighbors, so surely he must mean for us to hate them. See, Jesus is challenging this wrong interpretation of the law. How does he call us to respond to our enemies? Well, just as Dave showed us just a few weeks ago, we're to love them and pray for them. We're to want to see our enemies turn from their ways and become children of God just as we are. Does that mean that we shouldn't hate the bad things done to us or to the world around us by evil people? Of course not. We should rightly hate the wrongs that are done. But if we were to hate the person, then that would say we don't, see that, uh, we don't want to see them come to Christ. It would say that we want to see them live in eternal damnation. Instead, we should want to see all come to Christ. We should long for a day when we all stand in God's glory singing hallelujahs to the King of Kings. And we should want as many of God's people to be there as possible. It's only by love to our, neighbor, to our enemies that we can rightly say this. We should want to see them repent. We should want to see them turn away from those things that damage and destroy. We should want to see them transformed by the saving grace of Jesus. And Jesus highlights this foolishness of only wanting what's best for our own. He says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Do you see Jesus' point here? Loving your own is easy. Everyone does that. Even evil people love their own. No, we're, we're called to love everyone, neighbors and enemies, and not just to love them, but to love them as ourselves. We should want for them what we want for ourselves. We want good things for us. We want the salvation promised to us through Jesus' death on the cross. And we should want it for everyone else, regardless of whether they are friend or foe, family or stranger, neighbor or foreigner. Jesus' saving grace is not restricted to only us. It's not for only those in Belfast. It's not for only those in the West. It's for all in this world, all 7.8 billion and counting that live on this planet. But it's not easy. Far from it. If it was easy to love your enemy, everyone would be doing it. But we saw Jesus do it on the cross. 
While he was being strung up on the cross, with nails being pierced through his wrists and ankles, he called out to God, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Despite all the pain and suffering that Jesus endured, he still called out to God to forgive his oppressors. His response was love, and so it should be for us. It's only when we choose to love our enemies, to seek only their good, and to seek their repentance that we can be unshackled from the burden of hate and the seed of sin that yearns to grow within us. We've seen in verses 38 to 42 the idea of what Walter Winkett called non-violent or passive retaliation. Well, in these verses, 43 to 48, Jesus calls us to what John Stott likes to call actively loving. It's not enough to simply turn the other cheek. We need to love those who want to harm us. We need to love those who would want to oppress us. Pray for those who persecute you. Show them God's love and grace found in Jesus Christ. When we love, we show God. Leave judgment and vengeance for God. As it says in James chapter 4, verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. We're called to be countercultural. The culture around us is continually saying, that our rights outweigh anyone else's. You have to live your own truth. Look after yourself. Do what's best for you. Jesus turns that all on its head. We're to live for God's truth. We're to care for the needy. And we're to do what glorifies God, what shouts of the glory of the one who loves us. We're to do it, we're to do as it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, to give you an example of of someone who's demonstrated this idea of loving your enemy, who responded to harm against him with a countercultural love and forgiveness, and who showed the love of Christ that is in each of us, I need to take you back in time a little bit, back to November 1987. On the 8th of November 1987, at the height of the Northern Ireland Troubles, during a Remembrance Sunday ceremony, a bomb exploded near the Enniskillen War Memorial. As a result of the bombing, 11 people were killed and 63 were injured. Of those 11 deaths, 10 were civilians. The event was so harrowing that it was condemned by all sides. One of those injured in the bombing was a man named Gordon Wilson. He and his 20-year-old daughter Marie were buried under rubble. Marie sadly died as a result of her injuries sustained in that explosion, but Gordon survived. And later that very same day, having been rescued from the rubble, Gordon Wilson spoke with the media. And these are his words. We were both thrown forward, rubble and stones and whatever in and around and over us and under us. I was aware of a pain in my right shoulder. I shouted to Marie, was she all right? And she said, yes. She found my hand and said, is that your hand, Dad? Now, remember, we were under six feet of rubble. I said, are you all right? And she said, yes. But she was shouting in between. Three or four times I asked her, and she always said yes. She was all right. When I asked her the fifth time, are you all right, Marie? She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were the last words she spoke to me. She still held my hand quite firmly, and I kept shouting at her, Marie, are you all right? But there wasn't a reply. We were there about five minutes. Someone came and pulled me out. I said, I'm all right, but please, 
My daughter is lying right beside me, and I don't think she's too well. She's dead. She didn't die there. She died later. The hospital was magnificent, truly impressive, and our friends have been great, but I miss my daughter, and we shall miss her. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. She was a great wee lassie. She loved her profession. She was a pet, and she's dead. She's in heaven, and we will meet again. Don't ask me, please, for a purpose. I don't have a purpose. I don't have an answer, but I know there has to be a plan. If I didn't think that, I would commit suicide. It's part of a greater plan, and God is good, and we shall meet again. I've lost my daughter, and we shall miss her, but I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. I shall pray for those people tonight and every night. May God forgive them. Remember, that was the very same day that he had lost his daughters in that explosion. These profound words epitomize what John Stott calls the act of passive retaliation and act of love that Jesus is calling us to. Despite the grief, the despair, and the pain that he was no doubt feeling, Gordon Wilson chose to exemplify God's love to those that hurt him in one of the most worst ways imaginable. The historian Jonathan Barden wrote, no words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland have had such a powerful emotional impact. By choosing to show Jesus' example, Gordon Wilson made more of an impact on the troubles in Northern Ireland than any of the violence carried out. But we're not called to be like Gordon Wilson. He's a great example of what we're talking about today. But the ultimate example of loving your enemy is clear to see in the life and death of Jesus Christ. God willingly sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. We, by our very nature, are enemies of God. We ignore him. We do what pleases us. We seek our own good and not the good of the one who loves us. Despite the grief, the despair, and the pain that God no doubt feels, he loves us so much that he willingly sacrificed his own son, his own perfect son who lived a perfect life. And why? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God sacrificed his son so that we could be right with God. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are made clean. If we've asked Jesus into our lives and repented of our sins, then God looks at us and sees only Jesus. And we see Jesus' response to those who oppressed him on the cross. We talked about it earlier. He prayed for his persecutors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus' response to his enemies, just like God's, was love. So are you going to live for Christ? Are you going to pray for your enemies? Not out of obedience to God, but out of, sincere, out of a sincere hope for their salvation. Let's pray. Father, we glorify you and we thank you for the grace shown to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you demonstrated your own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We humbly come to you now, Lord, asking for your help to love those who would do us harm, to love those who want to hate us. Help us to demonstrate your act of love to them, not to lower ourselves, but to raise them up. Would we pray for our enemies, that they would know the love of Christ that we know today? Use us a foundation to further your gospel, no matter the circumstances, no matter the trials or tribulations we face. 
Would we not let anything stand in the way of your kingdom? Help us to overcome our selfish and sinful desires and to put everything in your hands. Would we demonstrate your love and forgiveness just as you did with Jesus on the cross? Help us to be countercultural and to pray blessings upon those who would harm us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our, our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forever. Amen.